History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, everyone. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is the History of Persia, episode 59, Holy War. Once again, before diving into today's episode, I want to remind you that I am also guest hosting the Oldest Stories podcast right now. The Oldest Stories is running through the myths and history of the Near East prior to Cyrus's conquests, and it is just now circling around the infamous Bronze Age collapse. But the regular host is busy doing one of those real jobs right now, and conveniently for me, he hadn't talked much about Bronze Age Iran. I, on the other hand, have been trying to find a good way to talk about the Elamites for a while now. So for the next few weeks... The Oldest Stories will be airing episodes with yours truly talking about the history of the Elamites in southwestern Iran 1,000 years before a certain king of Anshan got the wild idea to rule everything in reach of a small army. You can find those episodes at oldeststories.net or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. We've spent the last few weeks outside the main narrative looking at changing political realities, administrative reforms, and monumental building projects. Last time, I climbed through the ever-expanding branches of Xerxes' family tree 
and got to both look back on the last generation to have personally known Cyrus the Great, and look forward to Xerxes' children and grandchildren as they prepared to inherit the empire after the great king's presumably long and ongoing reign. This time, I'm looking back in Xerxes' reign to events I really just couldn't decide where to place in the broader narrative. The war with Greece is obviously the centerpiece of Xerxes' time in power, not just because it is so well documented, but because it really was a massive event. It was, probably, one of the largest campaigns, if not the largest, that Persia had ever mounted. It was years in the making, and even longer thanks to distractions from Egypt and Babylon. It spurred the development of Persian coinage. It led to the complete collapse of Persian authority in continental Europe, and necessitated restructuring the northwestern satrapies. With historic hindsight, we can even say that it laid the foundations for Macedon to grow into an expansionist power that will eventually consume the Achaemenid Empire. It was important, even if the Greeks themselves were not at the time. As we've seen, it wasn't Xerxes' sole occupation, but it did define many of his actions in the first half of his reign. If nothing else, the centrality of the Greek campaign does provide a convenient framework for storytelling. And that made it kind of difficult for me to get to the beginning of his reign, when we know priority number one was Egypt, and then deviate wildly off into the east to talk about a war against devil worshippers that we know practically nothing about. But damn if it doesn't sound cool as hell. Puns intended, and likely to continue. Today, we're talking about the so-called Diva inscription, officially designated as inscription XPH, meaning the eighth inscription from Xerxes, cataloged at Persepolis. In my opinion, this is probably the most interesting Achaemenid inscription, possibly competing for that top spot with Behistun. But where Behistun is interesting because it explains so much. The Diva inscription is fascinating because it explains so little. These two are actually a worthwhile comparison in many ways. Behistun is much longer, it is more verbose on a kind of base level, and has much more to explain. Darius's monument has to set the stage of complex events with complex events, and then explain a war with many theaters and stages. The Diva inscription, on the other hand, starts from a position where Xerxes is the clearly understood heir to the throne, and only addresses one campaign. But even that is an intriguing detail. Beyond their different lengths, they do follow the same basic format. The king introduces himself with praise for Ahura Mazda, he repeats his name and lists his titles and ancestral credentials. He rattles off a long list of territories under his domination. Then, it launches into a story of rebellion and war. But where Darius gives us locations, dates, commanders, and motivations with all the excess details of a well-rehearsed liar, Xerxes, 
is bafflingly coy. He gives the barest explanation for what happened and shies away from anything that would make it specific. But both inscriptions are sure to explain why their enemies were wrong on a moral level as well as a political level. From there, the mere format resumes. Both Behistun and the Daiva inscription at least attempt to close with an invocation of Ahura Mazda and insistence to follow his laws before a prayer for the great god to aid the king and his family. Behistun just proceeds to tack on a few extra campaigns for good measure in column 5. Despite the similarities, almost every section of Xerxes' inscription is relatively unique, at least in terms of what we've covered on the show. Some of the more formulaic parts are copied from some of Xerxes' or Darius's other inscriptions. And the ones that are repeated were clearly chosen on purpose. Three copies of the old Persian text have been found between Persepolis and Pasargadai on stone slabs. One of these old Persian inscriptions was installed on a gateway to Xerxes' palace at Persepolis, alongside the traditional Akkadian and Elamite inscriptions of the same text. The whole inscription is short enough and interesting enough that I'm just going to read the whole thing and stop more or less one section at a time, to work through it. Before I do, though, I should make a note about my translations. This part might be a little tedious and academic for some of you, but it's important to be honest about these sorts of things. You won't find today's exact translations online. Most of the time I use translations from Livius.org, an excellent resource produced by the Dutch historian Jonah Lendering. These translations are often two layers of translation deep, since they're actually translated from an original French text from Pierre Lecoq's Les Inscriptions de la Persée Achaemenide, but the layers of translation never alter the meaning of the text in any significant way. I just prefer the wording of the Lendering Lecoq translations over some of the direct-to-English versions that are freely available online, like Roland G. Kent's Old Persian, which you can find on avesta.org. Another phenomenal website, by the way. However, in this case, neither of those translations, nor Lecoq's original French, reliably translated the Old Persian in all of the inscriptions that come up in this episode the exact same way each time, to make the point which I want to make. I've been learning a bit of Old Persian, and maybe I could work out my own translations wholesale given enough time, but I did it the cheap and dirty way today. Most of what I've used is still from Livius, but at certain points I've made comparisons to the Old Persian text, Kent's translations, and the Old Persian Dictory from UT Austin's Linguistics Research Center to make repeated motifs more obvious and leave some of the religious terminology untranslated. I'll link to all of these websites in the description of this episode. So, the Daiva inscription. A great god is Ahura Mazda who created this earth who created yonder sky, who created man, who created happiness for man, 
who made Xerxes king, one king of many, one lord of many. I am Xerxes, the great king, king of kings, king of countries containing many kinds of men, king in this great earth far and wide, son of King Darius, an Achaemenid, a Persian, son of a Persian, an Arian of Arian stock. This is all pretty standard Achaemenid inscription stuff we've seen before. Xerxes claims that his authority emanates from the greatest of all gods. He reminds us of his titles that all basically say different versions of the best king out of all the kings. And then he doubles down on legitimacy by explaining his bloodline. As old Persian descriptions of their ancestors go, this specific list is pretty abbreviated. But don't let this fool you into thinking that Xerxes cared any less about the family tree than his dad. In other inscriptions, he lists everybody back to Achaemenes. In one example, he even lists every male on both sides of his family tree, repeating most of them as needed. This is just an abbreviated version of the same basic statement. The declaration of being a Persian, son of a Persian, an Aryan of Aryan stock, only appears in two other surviving inscriptions. Once on Darius's tomb, and before that on one of Darius's inscriptions at Susa. Both of those earlier examples have something in common. They are the only places outside of Behistun where Darius referenced the rebellions at the outset of his reign. Inscription DNA on his tomb has the line, King Darius says, Ahura Mazda, when he saw the earth was rising up, thereafter bestowed it upon me and made me king. I am king. By the favor of Ahura Mazda, I put it down in its place. And then, in inscription DSE at Susa, he has a slightly different version of the same thing. King Darius says, Much that was done badly, I made good. The nations were rising up. People were fighting each other. By the grace of Ahura Mazda, I brought about that they no longer would fight each other at all. Each one is in his place. We can see that both versions are a bit context-dependent. Susa was, in fact, one of those nations that was rising up itself which might explain the slightly more peaceful version of the story in that palace. But the important detail is that this line about being Aryan of Aryan stock only appears in the same inscriptions that reference the rebellions. Put a pin in that, and keep an eye out for those stock phrases as we go. Back to the Daiva inscription. King Xerxes says, by the grace of Ahura Mazda, these are the countries of which I was king apart from Persia. I had lordship over them. They bore me tribute. What was said to them by me, that they did. It was my law that held them. Media, Elam, Arachosia, Armenia, Drangiana, Parthia, Arya, Bactria, Sogdia, Chorasmia, Babylonia, Assyria, Satagadia, Lydia, Egypt, the Yona, 
those who dwell on this side of the sea and those who dwell across the sea, the men of Maka, Arabia, Gandhara, India, Cappadocia, the Dahai, the Homa-drinking Sakai, the Sakai-wearing pointed caps, Thrace, the men of Akofakia, the Libyans, the Carians, and the Nubians. These lists are always tedious. I've seen lots of modern historians try to claim that they follow some kind of set directional path radiating out from Persia, and that's just a lie. First, we go north, then south, then we jump kind of east, then west, then east again. It's a mess, and because they're a mess, it's very easy to write these lists off as the same list in different orders. But that is not true. Almost every list of provinces in royal inscriptions is actually unique. A couple later examples just copied the list at Nakhcherostam, but they came along after that list reflected anything close to reality. This list, from Xerxes, is actually the last new version of the province list we know of. After Xerxes, his successors stopped including them in their monuments for a while. And then they went back to an anachronistic version from the height of Darius's territory. That's not necessarily surprising, since any accurate list following Xerxes' defeats in the West would be less impressive and reminders of lost territory. This list, from Xerxes, is also the longest. On his tomb, Darius listed 29 subject peoples. Xerxes got up to a nice round 30 by removing one name and adding two. I've talked about some of this in the past. Darius listed the Saka Paradraya, meaning the Saka from across the sea. Typically, this is understood as the Scythians of southeastern Europe on the far side of the Black Sea from Anatolia. The basic theory goes that Xerxes stopped listing them to reflect political reality and stop dwelling on his father's failed campaign. The two new names under Xerxes are the Akofakia and the Dahai. First, we have the men of Akofakia, and we have no clue who they are or where they lived. They're at the end of the list with the less quote-unquote civilized Western peoples, but that section also lists a place in Europe, a place in Africa, a place in Anatolia, and another place in Africa in no particular order at all. The word Akafakia is at least plausibly Iranian, and nobody in any of the literate Western peoples like the Greeks or Egyptians ever mentions them. So it's at least plausible that Akafakia was somewhere in the Eastern Empire. On the other hand, we know Xerxes campaigned in Egypt, and it is listed alongside Western locales. It could be some otherwise unknown name on the Egyptian periphery, or maybe even in the Caucasus, but the Egyptians and Greeks were both such good record keepers that this seems unlikely. The Dahai are more interesting. I talked about them back in the first Grand Tour episode. They were a tribal confederation of at least three Scythian or Sakai tribes on the Central Asian steppe that eventually took over the eastern coast of the Caspian Sea. 
One of those tribes went on to break off and conquer Parthia, launching one of the more fun empires in world history. But for now, it's not even entirely clear if they are at home on the Caspian shores yet. Different theories about their origins suggest that the Dahai formed between the Caspian and the Sea of Azov, or that they migrated from as far east as Xinjiang Province, China. Personally, I lean toward already being along the Caspian, but the only thing we really know about them is that they paid tribute to Xerxes early on in his reign. It seems like they were never firmly nailed down and subjugated by the Persians, like most of the outlying steppe people. Under Darius, new names usually appeared in the province list following campaigns to conquer them. Behistun lists only 22 subjected provinces, with intermediary lists showing 25 and 27 before the full 29 at Nakshe Rostam. This coincides nicely with imperial expansion into Central Asia, India, Africa, and Europe. Following that same logic, the Dahai and Akofakia only appeared after Xerxes had conquered them, or at least campaigned against them like Darius and the Saka Paradraya. Again, put a pin in that because the next section is the real meat of the issue, the part that draws everyone's attention to this Daiva inscription in particular. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today.
King Xerxes says, when I became king, there was one among these countries that was rising up. Ahura Mazda bore me aid. By the grace of Ahura Mazda, I smote that country and put it down in its place. Oh, well, would you look at that? A country was rising up, and the king put it down in its place because Ahura Mazda bore him aid. Where have we heard that before? And it just keeps going. And among these countries, there was a place where previously Daiva were worshipped. Afterwards, by the grace of Ahura Mazda, I destroyed that Daivadana, and I proclaimed, The Daiva shall not be worshipped. Where previously the Daiva were worshipped, there I worshipped Ahura Mazda and Arta reverently. And there was other business that had been done ill, that I made good. That which I did, all I did, by the grace of Ahura Mazda. Ahura Mazda bore me until I completed the work. So that's one crazy paragraph that needs a lot more explanation. But to really get the full discussion, I want to read the next part where Xerxes asks for Ahura Mazda's blessings, because it really ties things together here. You who may live hereafter, if you think, happy may I be when living, and when dead may I be blessed, have respect for the law which Ahura Mazda has established. Worship Ahura Mazda and Arta reverently. The man who has respect for that law that Ahura Mazda has established and worships Ahura Mazda and Arta reverently, he both becomes happy while alive and becomes blessed when dead. King Xerxes says, May Ahura Mazda protect me from harm and my house and this land. This I ask of Ahura Mazda. This may Ahura Mazda give to me. So that's the Daiva inscription. The word Daiva itself is one of those religious terms that doesn't translate well. Demons is a convenient English translation of the Old Persian word, and over time, Daiva basically did become demon. However, much like translating Asha as truth, Druj as lie, or Yazada as angel, Daiva to demon doesn't really explain the whole Zoroastrian concept. In the Avesta, or at least most of it, the Daiva are not just evil spirits. They are, more accurately, false gods, beings on equal, powerful footing with the benevolent and venerated Yazadas, who were corrupted by Druge, the force of cosmic disorder. Arda, worshipped by Xerxes alongside Ahura Mazda, is just the old Persian translation of the Avestan Asha, cosmic order. The last of these words that doesn't have a perfect translation is Daivadana, which is a physical place where the Daiva were worshipped. So with all of that preamble, what the hell is going on here? To go with the abbreviated version, when Xerxes became king, an unspecified region was in active rebellion. And that region was home to a sect of Daiva worshippers that Xerxes quashed and imposed Ahura Mazda worship in their place. It's an incredibly difficult event to understand because Xerxes gives so little context, or at least it seems that way to a modern audience. 
but it's easy to see why it draws so much attention. It's so vague that you can speculate endlessly about which place was in rebellion, and it is a striking divergence from almost every other scrap of writing about Achaemenid religion. Everything we've seen up to this point has been so open to foreign religious practice that modern historians have a tendency to overemphasize Achaemenid tolerance. A story of destroying a sanctuary and forcing the worship of Ahura Mazda is definitionally the opposite of tolerant. The only specific detail is that these events played out at the beginning of Xerxes' reign, and even that breeds speculation. When I became king was a very busy point in time for Xerxes. Where did he find time to do this? And why isn't it referenced anywhere else? It's also vague in its own right. It could be his first year, or it could be just early on, generally speaking. As I said, the possibilities are endless, and as a result, historians, religious scholars, linguists, and laymen have suggested just about every possibility since it was first translated in 1936. So standing on the shoulders of both giants and loons, I'll add my two cents. I suppose step one is to decide whether the Daiva inscription is talking about a specific historic event at all. To most of us, that probably seems like an unnecessary question. It's pretty clearly describing a discrete sequence of events at a relatively specific point in time. But that hasn't stopped some very prominent Achaemenid historians from stating otherwise. The late great Helene Sensisi Weirdenberg was a Dutch classicist who orchestrated the Achaemenid history workshops in the 1980s and helped lay the foundations for Achaemenid studies as a field. She also didn't think this inscription had anything to do with real events. She argued that outside of Behistun, Achaemenid royal inscriptions are declarations of ideology, and that this inscription is vague because it is intentionally generic. These are ideas that are supposed to be projected on any rebel country. That actually dovetails nicely with the first trio of possible locations if we follow the majority of scholars and assume that this does describe a real event. One of the reasons that it is so easy to speculate about this inscription is because we know of so many provinces that were rising up when Xerxes became king. And we know that Xerxes damaged places of worship in at least three of them. Egypt, Babylonia, and Greece. The record of what exactly happened in Egypt isn't very clear, but we know that defeating the rebel pharaoh Samtik IV was one of his first priorities, and following a Persian victory in 486, the Egyptian archives associated with some temples came to an abrupt end. Meanwhile, the revolts of Belshimani and Shamash Arabah broke out in Babylon around the same time. Not only did some temple archives come to an end there as well, but multiple Greek accounts recorded Xerxes destroying and pillaging the Esagila temple in the heart of Babylon 
and removing the idol of Marduk. Finally, there's Greece. We may not think of Greece as rebelling, given our perspective based on Greek sources, but from the Achaemenid point of view, Athens had been in open revolt for decades before the Acropolis was burned, and we know that Xerxes both destroyed temples and worshipped there in the aftermath. The problem with all four of these, including Sensisi Weirdenberg's general statement theory, is that absolutely all of our other evidence goes against these ideas. Xerxes' Diva inscription very clearly describes punishing those who worship the Diva, stamping out the practice, and installing a Hora Mazda in their place. This did not happen in Egypt, Babylon, Greece, or any other province in the empire that rebelled. In fact, aside from removing the statue of Marduk, something that is also highly debated among historians, every other record of Xerxes' reign shows that the Achaemenid government continued to support foreign temples, and that Xerxes paid his respects to Greek religious institutions. The Persepolis archive tablets even reference Babylonian gods being worshipped in Parsa with state support. Unless Xerxes is just making a bald-faced lie in this description, this is not a general statement or a statement about any of those foreign lands. And it would be weird to make a statement like this in a place where someone could look out over the wall of the city and see people worshipping some of those gods. Our considerable evidence does not support the idea that Xerxes tried to impose Mazda Yasna on his whole empire. But I've mentioned in the past that the Achaemenids may have tried to impose it on half of the empire. The Daiva inscription is one of just two places where the Achaemenid kings openly condemn their subjects for religious heterodoxy. This one is obviously much more intense. The other example is from the Behistun inscription, specifically column 5, which is that shorter section that seems tacked on at the end. It describes Elam's third and final rebellion, as well as the rebellion of the Saka who wear pointed hats. In both cases, the section ends with the lines, King Darius says those Elamites slash Saka were faithless and Ahura Mazda was not worshipped by them. I worshipped Ahura Mazda. By the grace of Ahura Mazda, I did unto them according to my will. King Darius says, Whoso shall worship Ahura Mazda, divine blessing will be upon him, both while living and when dead. Now that sounds an awful lot like Xerxes saying, Where previously the Diva were worshipped, there I worshipped Ahura Mazda and Arta reverently. And, The man who has respected that law Ahura Mazda has established and worships Ahura Mazda and Arta reverently, he both becomes happy while alive and becomes blessed when dead. So, taken together, these excerpts from Behistun and the main thrust of the Daiva inscription paint an interesting picture. There are clearly some people that were supposed to worship Ahura Mazda, 
and Darius criticized them accordingly when they did not. But this was not uniform. The Babylonians certainly didn't worship Mazda, but neither of their rebellions is called out at Behistun. The same is almost certainly true for the Armenians at the time, and they aren't called out either. So why Elam and the Saka? Well, probably for the same reason that Xerxes condemned the Daiva worshippers. Daiva is a very specific word. It should not be understood as just any non-Zoroastrian god. In Old Persian, foreign gods and socially acceptable gods were called Baga. Worshipping the Baga was just fine, and that category included a number of Zoroastrian Yazadas, traditional Elamite gods, and Mesopotamian gods at Persepolis. Daiva should also not be understood as just demon yet. It was starting to take that connotation in the latest Avestan literature of the early Achaemenid period, but that's not how it is used here. Accusing your enemies of devil worship has always been good polemic, but people never actually worship demons. You just can't. If you think the demons are good, actually, then they become gods. So accusations of devil worship are usually pure slander. But in this case, Xerxes specifies that he destroyed a divadonna, a literal physical place of worship dedicated to the diva. This is a specific thing and a specific event that there would be witnesses to that doesn't mesh with general hyperbolic, polemic accusations of devil worship. That indicates a real place and a real practice. So we should look back at the original idea of the Daiva, real Iranian deities worshipped before the advent of Zoroaster's teachings and condemned by Zoroaster and his disciples. They are never invoked by name in the Gathas or other early Zoroastrian prayers, but they are mentioned by name in parts of the younger Avesta and those names appear elsewhere, not in Iran, but around the periphery of the Zoroastrian and Persian sphere of influence. Some Daiva just shared their names with basic evil concepts like anger or malice. But some of these false gods had names, like Nanjhaithiyaya, Saruna, and Indra. All three appear with very little variation in the Vedas of northern India. Vedic religion and Iranian religion had common roots in a shared Indo-Iranian heritage, and some of the gods they once shared as net positives may have been condemned by early Zoroastrians. Then, in Sogdia, which formed a kind of buffer between urbanized Bactria and the nomadic Saka, during the 400s, there were still people speaking an Iranian language with the word Deva still appearing in their names in the 9th century CE. Clearly the word wasn't demonized for everyone in the Iranian world early on, and that was even in a region close to the supposed home of Zoroaster. The whole point of Zoroaster's mission was that there were people who actually worshipped the beings he considered false gods. 
There is sometimes a tendency to think that religion spreads uniformly if it reaches a location far from its point of origin. But of course, this is not true. Zoroastrian beliefs could have reached the Achaemenid court, but remained unpopular in parts of the Eastern Empire. And that's where this inscription comes in. Darius condemned people he saw as fellow Aryans of Aryan stock, the Saka and Elamites, with whom the Persians shared many cultural traits for not worshipping Ahura Mazda. That was probably Xerxes' rationale for adopting the same phrase with this set of Daiva worshippers. They were Iranians, Aryans of Aryan stock, but they were following the Daiva, gods corrupted by Druze. So who were these Iranians, who were still worshipping gods condemned by Zoroaster? It is impossible to know. Given that Indian gods and Iranian daiva sometimes overlapped, it's always tempting to guess somewhere in that part of the empire. But Xerxes' inscription does not necessarily mean that he was in a country of daiva worshippers. In fact, the incident with the daiva is strikingly singular. There was one place in a whole rebellious land that had one daivadana. The presence of the word deva in Sogdian names makes it tempting to use that as an explanation, and in my opinion, it's at least much closer to the truth. This inscription was set in some remote part of the Iranian world where a community opposed to Mazda Yasna could hold out so long as they didn't get wrapped up in something dramatic, like an uprising against the crown. Coincidentally, Sogdia and its neighbors often fell under the jurisdiction of the satrap in Bactria. And wouldn't you know it, the satrap of Bactria, when Xerxes became king, rose up against him. Darius's eldest son, Artobazanes, challenged Xerxes for the right to the throne. Our sources are mum about what happened after Artobazanes voiced his opposition. Xerxes may have talked him down, or they may have gone to war. If Xerxes tried to bury this family feud, but still wanted to acknowledge the religious victory, that may explain why the Daiva inscription is so vague. Maybe he did go to war in Bactria, and maybe while he was there, he discovered that a heterodox community of Daiva worshippers had been permitted to prosper and crushed them. It's completely speculative, but not impossible. Of course, it could also fall to basically any other peripheral part of the Eastern Empire, where similar communities could exist. It could even include places that weren't truly under Achaemenid rule at the time. The early Achaemenid kings regularly espoused that Ahura Mazda gave them authority over the whole world. So in a sense, anyone who didn't submit was rising up against the king of kings. That could include newly conquered Iranian peoples like the Dahai or the land of Akofakia. But I think that is ultimately the most plausible explanation for this enigmatic inscription. 
We know that there were rebellions at the start of Xerxes' reign in Egypt, Babylon, and Bactria. Whether these events were tied in with the Bactrian Revolt or refer to some fourth unruly province, Darius's inscriptions and the word Diva itself strongly favor a story about further conflict in the Eastern Empire. And that's where I'm going to leave things off today. Now, if we continue forward with the narrative, I have to go back to fighting Greeks. And I'm in no rush to do that right now. So, we're going to stick with the topic of Diva. Maybe we'll be winding the clock back, or maybe we're still in Xerxes' reign. It's hard to know. But next time, I'm going to talk about a little something called Given Against the Diva, or the Vendidad. Until then, thank you all for listening. If you want more information about this show, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you can find things like the royal family tree, my bibliography, and the support page, where you can find different ways to financially support this show. That includes one-time donation buttons scattered all over the site and links to my Patreon. At patreon.com slash historyofpersia, you can get access to additional content like an email list, ad-free listening, and bonus episodes for a monthly subscription. As always, there are great ways to support this podcast for free. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, or the platform of your choice, but the absolute best way to help this podcast is always to let other people know about it, spread the word about History of Persia, and help the podcast reach new listeners. You can do that on social media by finding me as History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, or just History of Persia on Twitter. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.